By the way, weekly update note, um, Malcolm uh, Honeline might be traveling next week, or actually will be traveling next week, uh, but in terms of our poss- of the possibility of doing a weekly update, that we're not sure at this point, so we will uh, let you know as soon as we know regarding next week. The good news is he's with us this week. Malcolm Honeline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations. He's with us Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Honeline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. And, uh, we wish everybody a healthy winter and hope that the Yom Tovim went very well and everybody is healthy. We'd like this winter to be one where the, uh, where the, where the typical annual flu and this new thing that we've come to, uh, come to grips with called COVID uh, does not in any way uh, that they do not in any way uh, increase and, God forbid, uh, slow down the progress that we're making. Let's hope for a very calm and healthy winter for everyone, as you pointed out, Mr. Honeline. A <sighs> lot to be thankful for if we can make it through another winter without any major problems. Uh, the Jewish community has uh, suffered a couple of significant losses. So we mentioned, of course, that yesterday was the funeral of Rabbi Tendler. Uh, today, uh, Teshiva Flapush, Rabbi Dr. Eliach. Uh, is going to be remembered uh, at the funeral service before his um, uh, remains are sent to Israel for burial. And Malcolm, I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, these are two people who, as as we continue to lose some amazing giants in recent years in our community, but two people who have had such global influence from their own purchase in local areas, whether it be Brooklyn, Muncie, wherever it is, had such uh, international influence in the field of education. In Rabbi Tendler's case, obviously, in science and Talmud uh, and and leadership in general, and I think one can say that the uh, uh, the the inspiration uh, that men like this and leaders like this have given generations uh, will in fact be felt for generations in our community. Certainly, these were two giants, and um, it's a loss for their families, a loss for the whole community. The uh, Dr. Eliach, Rabbi Eliach, uh, and his wife. Uh, and were, were uh, educators par excellence, but also activists, people with whom we worked at Soviet Jury and so many other causes over the years. Rabbi Tendler is the same. I mean, he was a courageous spokesman uh, on the issues that he cared. He was way out in front when, when he developed, uh, I think it was called interferon, to deal with cancer. And it was something that made many of the magazines and newspapers. Um, and he, uh, but more than that, he was somebody that uh, people turned to for uh, guidance, and he in turn often turned to his schwer, uh, Moshe Feinstein's at Zal, and um, and one co- very courageous moment when he brought a message to to the big Solidarity Day rally from Moshe uh, that was uh, transformative in its impact, and um, uh, I know that uh, certainly from. Muncie, where he was based, to to impact all over the world to, on Jewish community. I didn't realize he was the facilitator for that message, and that was a message, obviously, that was many more than 30 years ago, because there hasn't been a Solidarity Sunday rally in more than 30 years. Uh, those of you who are uh, on the young side out there, you should ask your parents and grandparents about the gatherings that used to take place in New York and other cities in order to free uh, Soviet Jews and make their plight heard around the world, and especially in places like Washington 
and Moscow. That's a whole discussion for a different day. Um, the, the only thing I wanted to add was that, uh, and, and you're so right, and obviously you and I and everybody has you know, experienced over the last few years a loss of a lot of great leaders. I mean, these are two examples of great leadership. And I, and I just hope, I hope and pray uh, that they've left a legacy that will continue to produce more leaders so that when generations, um, uh, um, when further generations uh, look back at the people who are leading uh, the Jewish world, uh, for them and their children, they have the same fondness and the same faith in the leadership of the Jewish community that we have had in people uh, like those who we've recently lost. I think sometimes as we get older, we, we, we become skeptical uh, about those that we uh, eventually will leave behind and their capabilities. But I think Malcolm Jewish history has proven that there is a legacy that continues. In fact, today, being Erev Shabbos Bracious, I mean, teaches us this, right? We start all over again. We start from scratch, so to speak. And we get to the point where we uh, where we get closer and closer to the uh, uh, to the ultimate end of the story. So I just hope that a future generations are able to produce leaders like we've seen in our lifetimes. Amen. Uh, a lot of news. Most people want me to start with Iron Dome. I think you need to give us a little lesson. Uh, how is it that Iron Dome legislation, which we always just assumed was part of regular foreign aid legislation or a foreign aid bill? Uh, all of a sudden became a uh, a separate issue and actually ended up getting tossed into this you know trillion dollar infrastructure plan how do the machinations in washington bring iron dome uh, to to a, an unwanted attention over the last couple of weeks okay so for, for for one this is not part of the regular allocation the 3.3 billion that israel gets this was an additional allocation to supplement uh, the losses that Israel suffered in the war, I mean, the depletion of its stockpile of Iron Dome rockets. Remember, 4,000 rockets were fired at Israel. They had to respond um, to the vast majority of them with the Iron Dome, unless they were, the computers determined they were going into empty areas. So this was something the uh, president had promised, uh, Israel requested the president promised, and they had a standalone measure that was going to address it, the leadership in the House, in an attempt to try and draw votes for the bigger bill, added this in. And so some of those who objected, object on the basis that this it was inappropriate to put this in, in this allocation bill. Uh, and others, like uh, our friends in the squid, um, <laughs> who objected in, in supposedly in principle, Although, uh, as we saw in the subsequent vote, it's a little bit more confused than that. But they, um, but because of an anomalous situation, that they needed every single vote in order to pass it, lacking Republicans, they couldn't afford to lose any Democrats. So these, the extremists, uh, used this as leverage against the um, the leadership and forced them to 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 pull it from the the bill. It wasn't a defeat. It wasn't something, you know, as the headlines all say. And then subsequently, a bill just on this was introduced, and it passed 420 to 9. So it shows the almost nearly unanimous support for the measure and support for Israel. Uh, even the AOC, you know, voted present and voted against it, uh, and some others uh, who had opposed it in the earlier vote voted for it. Um, 
but it, it's overwhelming. The problem is that everybody rushed in and jumped on this in the initial bill without understanding the dynamic of what was behind it to make these headlines, which to, which can uh, continue to be reproduced. That uh, Israel lost, Iron Dome was defeated, and the fact that you had shortly thereafter almost a unanimous vote in the House on this. Uh, gets lost in the, in the shuffle, and it was a trap. It was um, you know a unique set of circumstances. But the I think the final vote was really the telltale one, and very critical. And we have uh, I think very broad support as evidenced by that. So it should never have been in that infrastructure bill to begin with, right? Okay. Um, if that's the case, that oh, and by the way, we should go through the nine for a second. And, I, and, I, and honestly, I'm not expecting you to know everything about all of these members of the United States House, but obviously, Tlaib, Omar, Presley, Bush, uh, those are these are all the regulars and expected. Right? But you know what the mistake is? We should not. We should talk about the 420 because every time we give them more oxygen, more air, more visibility, their constituents should know, and they should, they have elections coming up. They can vote, uh, you know, their views. But but the problem is that we're putting constantly them in the forefront, which only empowers them more, enables them to raise more money. You have to see their mailings, uh, AOC's well, well, daily mailings well, on, on, on fundraising. Well, we're not used to high-profile members of the House of Representatives getting this kind of attention. But they're not high-profile. They're made high-profile because of, the, of, of them taking these ordinary positions. And we constantly, we, the media primarily and, and uh, others, primarily focus on them. They should be dealt with, but the, I think that we have to be much more strategic in our approach. And and what's the incentive to the other 420 when the, the, all the oxygen gets uh, you know sucked out by these uh, outliers, right. which clearly they are. But if the but if the media has made them high profile, then we have no choice. Those who are pro-Israel, including the 420, and including people like us who care about Israel to have our voices heard, and it just seems, it just seems, and I don't know if this is a knock on APAC or others, I'd love to get your comment about w- what you think should have been done on an establishment level, but it does seem that this went by without too much commentary from those Jewish organizations that we would expect to be at the forefront against what happened. I get that the media has made darlings of these people, and I understand that the media has portrayed it as a defeat for Israel and a defeat for Iron Dome. But that's the, you know how it is, perception's reality now. So Exactly, and that's why I don't want to keep talking about them. I want to talk about, the, we have really critical issues that, that confront us. The, the, the perception that they're creating that and driving then further the Democrats away from, from pro-Israel positions, if we keep demonizing I mean, there's plenty to worry about and on that side of the aisle, and there's plenty to be concerned about, about the munition of support, whatever, uh, and, and on a whole variety of issues that are, are coming up and will be coming up. So, for, first of all, the criticism that I've seen from some about what did the organization say, they said a lot. The problem is it doesn't get picked up, and most of the it appears in Twitter because the newspapers don't pick it up. They're not interested in the comments, except if they get, you know, somebody from one of the outlying Jewish organizations that you know supports them or expresses uh, you know some sympathy for their position or tries to defend them. Um, so you know they become darlings. In part, we contribute to it. So there was a lot of reaction. I think people who thought about it. 
weighed what was the most the most effective response, and not because of of uh, you know fear of of standing up for it. And you know that APAC has run ads against some of these people and are is being attacked by. Um, uh, some members of Congress uh, saying that, that that Israel is buying the election and, and interference because APAC took ads exposing them and criticizing things that they have said or, or votes that they have taken. The two lawmakers who voted present, Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Hank Johnson of Georgia, I have no idea why he voted present. I don't know what the point was that he was trying to make. But in terms of her situation, she was she was uh, not arguably she was noticeably against this Iron Dome legislation passing, made it very clear publicly, and then changed the official vote to present. Um, the 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 um, the conjecture is that she's looking for a Senate seat that she's going to go up against Chuck Schumer, and she felt that altering this vote would have an impact on that election. Now, do you think that's ridiculous, or do you think that has some validity to it? This is all speculation, and again, we're spending all the time on 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 her, and not on the, everybody knows what her views are by now. It's an important she, regardless sentencing. of whether she voted for this particular thing in terms of the Senate uh, speculation. Everybody knows where she stands on these issues. This does not uh, rectify anything uh, in terms of her her record, and I think that that uh, I I don't understand it, and I certainly can't say why she, I've not seen a real explanation about why she voted, even though I saw that she made some statements about it. Um, and, there, and as I said, some of the others said they didn't vote against it because they were against Iron Dome. Right. Uh, and there were some that showed that when people, their constituents contacted them and said, this is a defensive weapon. Remember, this is not an offensive weapon. This is not this is purely defensive. It saves the lives of Jews and Arabs in Israel, and it, American troops are being protected by Iron Dome. It's a, a joint America-Israel project that that um, has revolutionized missile defense. And when you're facing 150,000 missiles in the north and 30,000, 40,000 still in Gaza and producing more in Iran, getting more in and others, right. that uh, it, it's a it's so vital and it's. It, that's why that it's so hypocritical when they, you know, expressed their, or took this uh, the advantage of this vote. Right. There was no basis for it. Right, I get all this, but when when someone like her could potentially be a United States senator from New York, and there are I do pe- not believe she could potentially be a senator from New York. Oh, I've heard predictions that. Okay, have, uh, so we, we each have our views. But right. it's all speculation. That's no, my point. I, un- I understand that, but I'm just saying that with that as a possibility, one has to wonder. Have we lost something in Washington? Has the pro-Israel community lost something in Washington, and, and even in New York? Or is this, you know, is this naturally the way things work, where groups that you know traditionally were not heard or didn't have the voice or power uh, in Washington, or again, you know, in state houses around the country, now suddenly, you know, th- times have changed, and now they're more influential. I'm trying to get to the point about how responsible the Jewish community is, or the pro-Israel community is, for all of this. We have our own. We have our own people within our own communities that are that are taking positions similar to the squad. 
when it comes to Israel, and it's and it's disheartening, and it's terrible, and we're losing that battle. We are losing a lot of people within the within our own community. I'm not talking about the Orthodox community. I'm sure you know what I mean when I'm talking about the national Jewish community. So uh, you know, so that has to be explored about how we're losing it on that front. But in addition to that, I wonder if this is a a battle that you know is going to start going the wrong way because we're not paying enough attention to it and people are not in touch with members of the house who are voting pro is you know 420 just voted you want to talk about the 420 every single person listening right now and we know we're reaching a lot of states <laughs> we know it from our recent fundraiser we're talking to people in a lot of places in this country every one of them should be contacting their congressperson about the positive vote that that just went down in Washington for Iron Dome and we're not we're not to help playing an active enough role and I worry that if we don't, you know, if we... I, I Listen, Nahum, I get it. I've talked about this for 20 years on the show, and I agree completely. They should have, everybody should be thanking their members of Congress. Everybody should be inviting them to their schools, to their communities, and talking to them about these issues, reinforcing the positive and confronting the negative. It, it is true that a lot of the young people are not being educated, don't understand. Uh, people are taking for granted the uh, assistance that Israel gets, and the fact is that every vote is going to be more complicated, especially with the economic conditions or other things. We should never take it for granted. We have to be on top of each situation. You have to address it, though, in an intelligent way, in a strategic way. It means it has to be planned. You don't just do knee-jerk reactions. We have to do much more to, to activate our community and broaden the base of involvement. And those elements that are extreme in our own communities should not be the ones that get all the oxygen sucked out, but to focus on the vast majority and to look at the broader community where it's true on the Democratic left, we are losing support. We're even losing support amongst evangelicals. And Soros organizations are, are funding you know, trips to, to, to the um, uh, Palestinian areas. Uh, we have to work on every one of these fronts. And we are in COVID, of course, you know, impinged on it, on our abilities to, to, to have groups go to Israel for and for so many other things, in-person meetings, conventions. We have to now make up for a lot of lost time. Yeah, but it's, it's imperative, and, and it's not because things aren't being done. Things are being done. We discuss all of these things and are planning it uh, for, for a long time already. Uh, and given the realities, we, we have to work around them. We have so much to catch up. You're so right. We have so much to catch up on in terms of activism because of COVID. By the way, this now, I'm, I'm confused because the whole Rand Paul story, this is now has to be approved by the Senate? or yeah. But but, but it, it's not in danger of not passing in the Senate, is it? No, he can just, he can hold on, he ah. can prevent it from becoming just an automatic it. vote. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Is there a chance that Iraq is going to recognize Israel? No, there's no chance that right away it, it, Iraq will be uh, the next partner in the Abraham Accords. It is a longer-term prospect. There was a remarkable gathering uh, organized in Erbil by an American group, um, and 300 people from Iraq, uh, from Kurdish areas. It was held in Erbil as part of Kurdish areas, and included some really leading people in, in Iraq. It was a, um, and they issued a declaration calling for Iraq to have peace with Israel, to recognize Israel. Uh, the Iraqi government 
uh, claimed not to have known about it in advance and uh, now issued arrest warrants for some of the participants. Uh, the Kurdish uh, region is protecting those who, who live there. And, the um, and you know, for a long time, there have been very close ties between uh, Kurdish regimes and uh, Israel, and uh, uh, there's a long history to it. Uh, and a long history of uh, of Jews in Iraq. You know, at one time Jews were uh, between the third and a half of the people in in Baghdad. And um, they, there's uh, you know obviously a history of thousands of years in in uh, in Iraq. So uh, the, the the likelihood of them moving now. Don't forget, they're under tremendous pressure from Iran all the time. They would like to break out from that. The, the, they've acted against some of the Iranian militias who occupy the areas along the border with Syria, on both sides, actually, of that border with Syria. And they have taken actions when they were displeased with some of the things the government of Iraq did. But the people in Iraq, I think, want to throw off this yoke. Um, but for the time being, I think uh, right now we have to protect these, uh, these people try to see our government and others uh, speak out on their behalf and try to intercede with them. Iraq is playing a different role, which is very important, and that is convening Iran and Saudi Arabia. And the Prime Minister, um, uh, Kadimi, uh, has been acting as a go-between. He organized a conference with Egypt and Jordan, and then a much broader one where they brought in uh, other countries, um, trying to make both Iraq relevant and as a hub for the developments in the region, and also um, trying to to advance an agenda which would give them the basis to become uh, more uh, independent. Um, so these conferences <laughs> were not considered to be you know one time events. They're trying to build this as a as a pattern and to move these conferences to other capitals sounds, as well. Sounds like they're making their own Abraham Accords, <laughs> the way well, they're trying to reach out. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there's a vacuum right now. People feel and sense a vacuum. But I would there's think the perception of the U.S. withdrawing the other things, Iran, Russia, China, others are moving in. Uh, Turkey and Iran take advantage of it, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in uh, the whole region. But do the Iranians and the Saudis have that many common interests? They have common concerns, like Yemen, that's Saudi Arabia's major issue, uh, I think what it wants from them. Also, it wants them to stop arming the, the Houthis in Yemen with these missiles and the drones and the other things. Um, I would not give too much significance on the substantive level about it. I think it's, it's meant to be a show. I think that they... Yeah, you know, it's Saudi Arabia cut off its relations with Iran back in January of 2016 uh, after they stormed, Iranians stormed the uh, Saudi diplomatic facilities um, because uh, Saudi Arabia had executed a Shiite cleric, uh, Nimr al-Nimr. Uh, so the, the uh, you know, again, what people see on the surface is not exactly what the... Um, um, what the real significance, but I, I will say that I do think it's the perception of America's withdrawal from the region or lessening of commitment, whether true or not, uh, that is driving a lot of what people are doing, because as you said, perception is the reality. Right. That's what they perceive, that's what they act on. Uh, the Iran deal we want to get to in a second, but before that, the, the New York Times made a big deal about those who are trying to leave Iran. I would think that's always been consistent over the last many years. Is it the new regime 
in Iran that's that's accelerating people's desire to get out of the country? Absolutely. Young people want to get out because unemployment amongst young people is over 40% because they have no hope in the economy. They don't want to live under the restrictive regime. Uh, you see, uh, is obviously even more extreme uh, though it's only matters of degree, then Rouhani, but Khamenei is, the, Khamenei is still the guy who makes the determinations and, and the rules. Um, I think that they're diddling us on, on the Vienna talks. They are continuing to to engage in all sorts of uh, uh, hostile activities. You know, that you saw that the, one of the generals who said that we have established six armies, and they include in that the Syrian army, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, Islamic Jihad, uh, the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces, and the six of the Houthis in, in Yemen, and you know, showing that they have this young, this dynamic position. And the young people in Iran see that COVID is killing uh, many more people than they admit. That the educational opportunities are nil. That the restrictions on them uh, grow all the time, and so they. And they have no hope of of a, of a change. What really is important right now, by the way, in regard to Iran, that American media has not picked up at all, is that there's a massive buildup of Iranian troops along the Azerbaijan border. As you know, 30 million Azeris live in Iran, but more than live in, in Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan has linked with Turkey in the war in Armenia. Iran, uh, strangely, is backed uh, Armenia against their Muslim brothers, Armenia being a Christian country, and the that situation is very tense. Uh, Erdogan visited the area some time ago the, near the border, and he, may, he read a poem which was considered uh, irredentist. You know that he that called for. Uh, uniting the Azeri populations or some tribute to them. Well, I was just going to ask you, what's the Turkish and Russian response to this buildup along the Azerbaijan border? So Russia wants this, is in charge of the peace in, in Armenia, positioned themselves brilliantly in that regard. Um, Turkey never entered, I mean, Iran had mass troops on the border, but never entered, in part because Turkey and Israel was involved. Now the Iranians are saying that they don't want the Zionists on their northern border, uh, the uh, meaning the Israeli presence and Israel has very close relationships with Azerbaijan, very complicated and military, economic and other ties which are very open. Um, so while they see the you know continuing to see some explosions during the week, which don't even get much attention anymore at an IRGS research center in one of the airports, and uh, and, and in Syria at some of their um, Supply depots. I don't even know the, if Israeli news sources had that. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I, I can't. That's true. <laughs> I'm telling you, I don't uh, but, the, but yeah. So <laughs> this is, you know, you have so many conflicting things. Saudi Arabia and Iran sitting and talking. It's not what it appears to be. I think and the same thing here, where nobody pays attention to what potentially could become a very explosive situation and ignite the region where you would pit Turkey against Iran, Turkey with Azerbaijan. Against Iran, Iran maybe bringing trying to bring in other forces. Iran is trying to um, reconcile, you know, work with the Russians and the Chinese, they, especially the Chinese. They're selling oil to the to them. Uh, U.S. has asked oil uh, uh, China not to buy it, and yet they, we know that they are continuing to do so. With the price going up, that's what enables Iran right now to continue some of its. Um, its activities, and at the same time, Turkey is reaching out to Iran, to Russia, um, 
you know, it's it's all self-serving, and and the, the animosities between them are very deep. The Iranians hate the Russians. They occupied the country in World War II and didn't leave. The the um, obviously Turkey and Russia have a long history of of animosity. Uh, Erdogan is very strategic in in the way he does things and reaches out. So we have a lot of things in flux. I mean, I can't even begin to go through all of the issues that we, we see right now. You know, Lapid can visit Bahrain, meet the king, open an embassy, put up a mezuzah with the, them, uh, and the, um, it, the many of them are visiting Israel at uh, the same time coming with the first commercial flight from Bahrain, landed in Israel, Morocco started the regular flights, and yet at the same time we see these very disturbing developments moving in the opposite direction. Wow, unbelievable. And and and. Again, it looks to me that the Iran deal, or at least the uh, speculation about what direction it's going in, is getting a little bit more attention in the American media, uh, prompted comments from the Secretary of State, who sort of sounds like he's starting to give Iran some type of deadline, and they're, of course, demanding uh, less sanctions. Was it the U.N. get-together over the last couple of weeks that brought this more to the forefront, or things are just developing in terms of a possibility of an Iran-U.S. agreement? Yeah, not much happened at the U.N. thing. We had many meetings with heads of state, with uh, foreign ministers from Russia, from Saudi Arabia, from many of the Arab countries and others. Um, uh, maybe we'll perhaps talk about it in the future. Um, but we got many insights into to what's happening and, and hearing it from the perspective of from their side rather than ours uh, enables us to have a much better uh, uh, picture of of what is happening. How would they like to see the U.S. government handle this? Meaning they deal with Iran. So um, many would like to see us be tough with Iran. Um, None of them are, most of them are not ready to. We see that the Europeans are still uh, inconclusive and um, Germany now has this, uh, uh, you know, outcome of an election where you could have a three-part government, but you, I don't know that that could ever work in any country. Oh, Israel has it too, yeah. So <laughs> they they, work, maybe right. they're following that model, but, you know, with Merkel exiting the scene and Macron facing election and also having domestic problems, they are still looking to get back into the deal, but they, they see that Iran is violating more and more blatantly every one of the standards. Uh, Raisi said, and as government has said now in the last couple of days, well, it'll be in the near future that they'll get back. Others tell me they don't see the prospect coming back. They barred the inspectors again in the last weeks, after, even after making a deal with the IEA that they would turn over the cameras and let them go in and repair them. They took the cameras and the films and we refused to give any of the information to the IEA. So they're, they're violating on every front. And, you know, so there's increased frustration. There's talk about new sanctions that the United States and others are, are, are going to impose. And that, that's really what counts. I mean, if they, if Iran, which, whose economy is in complete collapse, and the exodus of the young people is one manifestation of that, but it's in complete collapse, uh, the, the infrastructure, the drought that impacts so much of the country, the um, the lack of facilities and medicine and other things, not because of the boycott, but because the government uh, malfunctions. So the the critical um, uh, stage we're at now in, in in that Iran is in. So they will play out. They could do it by escalating tensions. They can do it by. Um, 
uh, more activities to heat up the region. You know, they can turn on Hamas, Hezbollah. Uh, Abbas, you know, gave a one-year ultimatum to end the occupation, and, you know, he he also can play a role uh, in, in this in heating up the situation, though it's not in his interest, and I think he has uh, limited capacities uh, right now, and their economic conditions also are are terrible. But it's expanding, and, and uh, I just one other thing is that the events in Afghanistan have impacted all of this. It's lowered the confidence. It's raised a lot of questions about what Afghanistan's role, whether al-Qaeda, ISIS coming back. Yeah. So these governments are on the front line, all of them. Yeah, as uh, most predicted would happen. Uh, how did he do, the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, how did he do at the U.N.? I think he did fine. He, you know, people keep saying, oh, he's not BB, didn't do medical. He didn't want to be BB. He wanted to be Bennett. He wanted to to communicate a message. And I will tell you that many of the leaders that we met talked about that the um, atmosphere is more calm or whatever, uh, because BB was a real force. And remember, for 12 years, I mean, he was the prime minister, and he, uh, um, you know, set the tone and, and the pattern. And you have to look at the amazing accomplishments. And now the Bennett government, which many people didn't think would last this long, has and seems to be you know, functioning. He talked about it when we had, there was a meeting on Monday with him. And, you know, he said that these are parties that he never thought he would be working with, but it, it is working. And they, you know, they focus on the common interests. You have to be strategic about it, he said. And the um, looking about how you build unity and, and uh, you know, he, each prime minister is different. Each one brings their own style. Yeah. And I, th- I think he's B- got limitations by virtue of the kind of coalition he has. I think BB had an advantage at the UN that uh, the American media at that point uh, was ready to help him with the panic about Iran. Now I think they just ignore it. Like I mean, you could you could speak to your blue in the face about it. Now they they couldn't care less. Yeah, but he would do dramatic things like the the drawings right. and the true. bomb that ready to explode, true. and right. you know that. But that's not Bennett's style, and right. we shouldn't expect it. You know, people always compare, and I tell them it's it's each different. Each one will come, right. and and they make a judgment about what is the agenda. He wanted to speak, I think, mostly to the people of Israel. He came. You know, after most of the foreign leaders left, he did meet the Bahraini and the UAE uh, foreign ministers or um, minister of state in the UAE case, and um, and he spoke to to Jewish groups, but he did very little else because right. of uh, COVID and, and limitations. And Yantif, uh, <laughs> your reaction, uh, Malcolm, and I know we have very little time, but Vice President Harris, according to the headline, validates a student who accused Israel of genocide your reaction well i think what she did was uh you know most of the diplomatic language would be unfortunate and i think it was uh you know the, the student uh she it turns out she had just given a lecture about people speaking up or whatever right. and the student then said uh talked about genocide in connection with israel that israel engaging in genocide etc and she was seen nodding her head and saying, well, you you know, you have the courage to speak your truth, whatever. But she wasn't speaking a truth. She was speaking a lie. And and I think that uh, the administration recognizes that this was uh, unfortunate. I'm sure we'll, we'll, I anticipate we'll get some sort of clarification further. I know that there have been phone calls made by people from her office to clarify what what she said and that she stands 100% behind Israel, that she knows that that was a lie and that that's never been her position. 
but the problem is that the damage gets done. And again, here the media focuses on it. So what's the takeaway that remains with people, like from the vote, not that 420 to 9, they remember that Israel got defeated. Here, that what well, they will remember is that the vice president didn't challenge somebody who, who accused Israel of, uh, of genocide. Media controls the message. Uh, we'll let everyone know about next week. Malcolm, have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks for joining us. Oh, Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM and the AM with the weekly update.